On this week's episode of Third and Manageable, coaching staffs and rosters are being shaken up one week into training camp, while injuries continue to pile up to the unlucky. But first, there is a new leader in the highest paid skill position category as we take you around the league with the weekly updates. Then to close out the show, the preseason has officially begun. We'll have our freshly hot takes on the first game film for the 2019 season. Stay tuned. And welcome back to another episode of Third Manageable. I am Shem Hanks. And I am Brad Roberts. And we're coming at you with a whole new episode, as well as one of my favorite things, a recap of the Denver Broncos game. But first, we've got some things that we gotta cover. Starting off, let's talk about Michael Thomas. Yes, Michael Thomas getting paid a ridiculous amount of money, but very well deserved, I would say. Yeah, so you were higher than I was on Michael Thomas in that you said Michael Thomas is the best wide receiver in football. The Saints are paying him as the best player, not a quarterback in football. Yes. Well, I mean, yes, the $20 million that he's getting every year is a sizable amount of money. But there was no better wide receiver that had a higher completion rating with his quarterback last year. I mean, 84.3%. That's... That's a number that should be attributed to a quarterback to a wide receiver with 20 targets. And Michael Thomas had, if I'm not mistaken, 123 targets Mm. with Drew Brees last year. And to have an 84% completion rating, that's insane. Of course he's worth $20 million. Sure. So his nickname is Can't Guard Mike. Great nickname. Of course. And so I was watching the NFL Network's Top 100 this last week. And in their Top 100, they had DeAndre Hopkins. And they set a stat that Hopkins had not dropped a pass that has touched his hand in the last year. Are you still taking Michael Thomas over DeAndre Hopkins? Uh, see, that's that's a tough call because... I mean, I would naturally put Drew Brees higher on the food chain as a quarterback than Deshaun Watson. So by that metric, I mean, yes, I'm still taking Michael Thomas as the better receiver. He's going to get you the most stats. He's going to have the better year. But I don't think we really have to put one above the other. Let's just call it 1A, 1B. Like, they're both, if not... If it's not DeAndre Hopkins, it's the best wide receiver in the league, it's Michael Thomas. And if it's not Michael Thomas, it's DeAndre Hopkins. You could make the argument for Julio Jones, but those those guys are far and beyond above anybody else. Like, I'm taking Michael Thomas before Antonio Brown. Mm. Ten times out of ten. But where are you putting Devontae Adams in that list? I'm putting him outside of both of those guys. I'd probably put Devontae Adams outside of Julio Jones as well. Mm. Maybe even Antonio Brown. But those guys would probably round out my top five. It just kind of depends on where you're putting them in the top five. But the top two is Michael Thomas and DeAndre Hopkins. Easy choice. Are you putting Tyreek Hill at six or are you leaving him outside at that point? I'm leaving him outside the top five. Yeah, well, poor Tyreek. Well, that's just, (laughs) you got to have more than one or two years. I mean, Julio Jones has been doing this for how long now? 
Yeah. I mean, DeAndre He's Hopkins. approaching, what, his third contract? So Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and DeAndre Hopkins is the same way. Antonio Brown is the same way. Devontae Adams uh, has had a little bit more success than Tyreek Hill. And, uh, and honestly, Tyreek Hill has been good, but he's really only broken out with Patrick Mahomes. Like, he was a different guy with Alex Smith throwing him the ball. Whereas Devontae Adams, when Brett Hundley was throwing the ball, was still putting up wide receiver one numbers. Yeah. All right, so Michael Thomas signs, which in our last podcast we had talked about, could happen at any point. It was almost inevitable, where clearly they needed to sign Michael Thomas, that is the New Orleans Saints. So let's talk about someone who hasn't signed yet, and that's Ezekiel Elliott. Oh, where do we begin here? Um <laughs> Cabo. That's where we begin. <laughs> That's where we begin. Okay. So Ezekiel Elliott is not working out. Ezekiel Elliott is, I would say, not in the best shape he can be in because he's not doing what he needs to do. And when you're holding out to get money, I want to see you like Terrell Owens doing sit-ups in your parking lot. In your driveway. that That's the kind of player that I want to be seeing if you're going to go this whole holdout route. If you're going to go out from Cabo, my first reaction is to trade you and say, you know what, I'm done with this. If you're not going to be at 110% when I do pay you the money, uh, then you're not worth it to me. That's too much of a risk. And one of the weird parts about the Ezekiel Elliott contract is this August 6th deadline that's coming up. And so August 6th, if he does not report to camp, he forfeits this year of credit towards his free agency. So that postpones unrestricted free agency for another year if he doesn't show up by Tuesday. Well, and let's remember... This is a player with two years left on his rookie contract. Yeah. So, I mean, in reality, he could be three years away from being paid by a team other than the Dallas Cowboys because they could, if even if he reports, they hang on to him for two years, plus they can franchise tag him. So uh, he's not doing himself any favors at all. It's, it's smelling like his time in Dallas is coming to an end. Maybe that's wrong. Uh, maybe my opinion's a little bit biased, but I just don't see why you're bringing back a player that isn't in 110% game shape. We've seen it time and time again. A player comes back not prepared, his body isn't ready, takes a low blow, and now you just blew out your knee. Now you just tore your Achilles. You've torn your rotator cuff. You've you've torn a pectoral muscle. You you have some sort of back injury, something that keeps you out for the whole year, and oh, crap, we just paid you $65 million in guaranteed money, and now we're waiting another 17 months to see you on the field. And we've talked quite a bit about Le'Veon Bell. So Le'Veon Bell holds out, misses out on $14 million for a year, and then the next year gets $12 million every year. So Zeke holding out doesn't necessarily get him more money. Uh, the other part about the Zeke deal is that Dak Prescott, Amari Cooper haven't signed their contracts yet. And 
Alfred Morris is now in camp for the Dallas Cowboys. Something we we haven't touched on at all yet. Yeah. So is this Alfred Morris signing to you? Are they preparing for life without him? I mean, they drafted Tony Pollard in the fourth round. So is this some sort of step towards life without Elliot? Or, or are we just trying to read too much into this? I see it as Jerry Jones saying, hey, look, I signed Alfred Morris. I can wait the entire season without you. If you want to sign the contract or whatever it is that we offered, you want to report to camp, let us pay Dak Prescott, Amari, Toom- or Amari, Toomer, Amari Cooper first, then we'll pay you. Yes, but it looks like the Jones family has made their contingency plan and Looks like they're sticking to their Dallas Cowboy guns. Well, and remember, this is also a Dallas Cowboys team that has spent a substantial amount of money on that offensive line between Tyron Smith, Lel Collins, Travis Federick, Zach Martin. Uh, I mean, the list goes on and on. And remember last year, it was the Pittsburgh Steelers offensive linemen that spoke up. If I'm not mistaken, it was uh, DeCastro. Hmm that spoke up about Le'Veon Bell, basically saying, uh, and I'm paraphrasing here, that you were good because we were a good offensive line. You know, I mean, Le'Veon Bell is good. He's very talented. But that offensive line was making it very clear that we made those lanes for you to run through. Without those lanes, nobody knows your name. So perhaps this is Dallas kind of sending a shot across the bow that, you know, we can make anybody work in this offensive line. If if they're healthy, they could crank out a 1,500-yard rusher with or without Ezekiel Elliott. Yeah. And with that offensive line, with that group of guys... Would you feel comfortable rolling into a season with Alfred Morris, or is there an argument that Jerry Jones needs to pay Ezekiel Elliott his money now? Ah, see, now that that's a tough decision. Um, uh, I don't see. See, I'm trying to look at it as not just this year, but next year. Um, the Dallas, they are potential Super Bowl contenders with Ezekiel Elliott this year. The problem is, if they pay him, I don't see how they are capable of affording paying Ezekiel Elliott, Amari Cooper, and Dak Prescott in the same year when you just made um, David Lawrence the highest-paid pass rusher in the league the year before. Not only that, Demarcus Demarcus Lawrence, excuse me. I'm thinking of David Irvin and mixing those guys up. Demarcus Lawrence, straight out of BSU. Shout out. Yes. Okay. So between him and not only that, remember at the beginning of the 2018 season, they re-signed Zach Martin to that huge deal, making him the highest paid guard. So this is a team that's shelling out a ton of money. If they want to be Super Bowl contenders this year, um, they need to pay Ezekiel Elliott. I think they're still... Uh, potential favorites to win the division, make a run in the playoffs perhaps with just Alfred Morris. But I don't see this nucleus of young players being able to stay together if they pay Ezekiel Elliott. I think if you pay Elliott, you're saying goodbye to Amari Cooper, who you just shelled out a first-round pick to the Oakland Raiders for last year. 
All right, so we talk about Ezekiel Elliott holding out. The last two shows, we've talked about Melvin Gordon holding out. Now, Melvin Gordon this week has officially requested a trade from the Chargers. The Chargers have come out and said no, but I kind of see that as a maybe. Like, maybe if the right offer comes around, they'll trade Melvin Gordon. Well, I mean, from a PR standpoint, they have to come out and say that they're not going to trade Melvin Gordon. If they even open the door, then they lose leverage with him and his agent. So I completely understand their position to completely say no. I was expecting that. Um, But obviously, they're not leaving any cards off the table. If they get a ridiculous offer from, say, Tampa Bay, from Miami, from preferably somebody not in their division, not even in their conference, I think they will strongly consider that option. But um, looking at the teams around the league, I don't see a lot of teams that have A, the draft capital, B, the need, or three, the cap space. I don't know why I said A, B, and three, but sure, uh, that yeah. doesn't make any sense. <laughs> Excuse me? C doesn't actually count. It's just three. Yeah, yeah. We just go straight to three from B. <laughs> um, but I, I don't see teams having, a lot of teams having those three things, which is what you're going to need to get Melvin Gordon. Because if you trade for him, obviously the, the Chargers aren't going to let him go for nothing. It's not going to be like an Antonio Brown scenario. Running backs in their prime require a massive... Uh, payload but you're also going to have to have that that salary cap space to sign him but I mean which of these teams that have great draft capital also see themselves as being good potentially in two three years so I mean why would you go out and leverage your future for a player that may be out of his prime in two three years let's not forget Melvin Gordon just a couple years ago couldn't even score a touchdown True, true. Big, just last year, part. yeah. Just last year, he didn't finish the season. So uh, yeah. I know he only missed two, three games, but uh, it, it's it's very dangerous to be putting yourself out on that ledge. All right. So let's talk about Yannick Ngakwe. How how did I do with saying his name? Uh, you said it just perfectly. Oh. Yannick Ngakwe has officially ended his holdout. Right. So he held out for 11 days. In that 11-day total, he faces a fine of $528,650, which includes an $88,650 fine for skipping minicamp in June. Let's remember, he is getting paid $2.02 million this year. So if my math is correct, um, he is facing a fine of $617,000 with an overall salary this season of $2.02 million. And uh, that's that's over a quarter of his salary that he just gave up for an 11-day tantrum. Uh, am, I, yeah. am I misunderstanding this? Yeah, it sounds like a real bad idea. Well, of course, but uh, reading this report from ESPN, I'm getting this feeling that he's coming back, he's pissed, uh, he's in that same scenario as Ezekiel Elliott, he has to report by August 6th, yeah. if I'm not mistaken, and he wants to play out this season, and he's going to say sayonara to the Jacksonville Jaguars. 
maybe I'm wrong. Uh, tell me I'm wrong or tell me I'm right. But that's how I'm reading this report here that he's just not in a good mood. I think he's going to go for double digit sacks, just be pissed and sack some people and uh, move on from Jacksonville and get a huge contract. And you just said it right, going after that double-digit sack total where Frank Clark looked like he was out of town for the Seahawks, has a massive year, and then gets paid by Kansas City. I think that's what Yannick Ngakwe is going to be doing this year. I would agree. Um, It's going to be interesting to see how Jacksonville plays this out because they have a lot of disgruntled players between Jalen Ramsey and Gakwe. Uh, Telvin Smith is not reporting for some sort of reason, uh, kind of undisclosed. Uh, There seems to be a lot of turmoil in Jacksonville as they're trying to retool themselves to being back at the top of the division. Yeah. All right, so something else that happened this weekend is that Mr. Tom Brady signed an extension. He signed a two-year extension. He will now get paid $23 million this year, but he will be back with the Patriots for a couple more years. Well, he's made it clear that he will continue to play for as long as his body holds up. So as long as he's being productive, which until somebody steps up in that division, that could be another 15 years. Um, We don't know what the... Jets and the Bills and the Dolphins have been doing uh, apparently nothing. <laughs> uh, so Brady is going to play until he suffers a major injury or his play just goes to hell. But until then, he's just going to keep signing these LeBron James style contracts, um, getting paid a buku amount of dollars and uh, leading his team to, I mean, what is it, a 10th Super Bowl this year? Sure. He's been to nine so far, one six already. I mean, why not keep on going? Yeah. So um, I see this as he's continuing his goal of trying to play until he's 45 years old. That's all that's happening right here. Yeah, but once he reaches 45, I mean, is he just going to say like, hey, I'm feeling great. Let's go to 50. I mean, why not? (laughs) Sure. (laughs) Yeah, why not? Just keep I, going. I don't know. This guy is ageless. He's Father Time has an undefeated record, but this guy may actually defeat him. Yeah. So uh, I'm not sure how that's going to go. Uh, speaking of the Dolphins, though, they are doing something. And yeah. it turns out five days into training camp, they have already fired one of their coaches. This is a team that just last year cleaned house with Adam Gase cut him, let go of the entire staff, and now with Brian Flores at the helm, the one-year defensive coordinator from New England, he's already fired his offensive line coach in Pat O'Flaherty. I don't really understand this. I mean, why did you hire the guy in the first place if you're going to fire him five days into training camp? Um... (laughs) I mean, the Dolphins are already going to be bad anyway, so why not? Why not just completely destabilize a huge aspect of your offense to start the season? Uh, They hired a former analyst who was involved with the offensive line for the Indianapolis Colts last year. Uh, 
I mean, the Colts' offensive line was pretty good last year. Maybe that's just what they're thinking. Well, maybe they should have hired that guy in the first place. Um, (laughs) That would kind of make some more sense. But, you know, first-year head coach, you're kind of wanting to immediately – uh, imply some stability at the helm, and clearly that's not the case. Um, usually in any scenario, when a head coach is firing a member of his staff, he's on the hot seat. And I, I don't want to say that Brian Flores, I mean, this guy is less than two months into the job officially from OTAs to now. But what is going on in this division? Can they just not get their shit together? This is ridiculous. I mean, how many more Super Bowls do the Patriots have to win before the Dolphins, the Bills, and the Jets get their act together and step on the gas here? I don't think that they're capable (laughs) of it. I don't. (laughs) All three of them have quarterbacks that were drafted in the first round from the 2018 class. And I'm still waiting for somebody to step up here. So maybe we see it this year. Maybe it's five years from now. Maybe it's going to take Brady to sign another two-year extension before somebody steps up. But uh, trouble in Florida is the case. And it's the weirdest division in that it's not even a race. Like, we all just assume that the Patriots are going to win the division yet again, where every other division actually has a competition that's happening. Well, every other division has actually had competition for the last 18 years. Sure. When was the last time we went into a season looking at the AFC East is like, ooh, this this could be interesting. I mean, the, the last time I could say that I was legitimately concerned the Patriots might not win the division was the year after Brady's injury because, I mean, he just had that ACL tear. It was looking a little shaky that, you know, sometimes players don't come back from that at 100%. Mm. And, yeah, they won the division. So. Sure. Well, and I guess the... Uh... Jets Rex Ryan years. Yeah, I mean, sure. Yeah, they they went to back to back AFC Championship games. Uh, one of those years, they did win the division. Other than that, uh, sure. Yeah, nothing, nothing real going on. Tony Sperano won the division one year. That was the year that Brady was out with an injury, and Matt Castle uh, um, uh, was still leading him to an eleven and five season. And so we were talking about the Dolphins, new offensive line coach, formerly of the Indianapolis Colts. So the Colts also had an injury this week that affects them in a major way. Major. In that Andrew Luck is once again hobbled up. Yeah, this is a guy who, uh, from my perspective, has had a considerable number of injuries throughout his career thus far and uh from the reports that i've been reading it's sounding almost like that kevin durant injury where it's a calf strain and if there's too much pressure put on it it could lead to an achilles tear which is going to put him out for a substantial amount of time uh so andrew luck from what i've been reading is going to be held out for the entirety of practice this week they're going to be playing it slow throughout the preseason i mean do you see him playing in any preseason games this year and them just tossing him into week one 
No, if I'm the Colts, I'm keeping him out of preseason. No need to risk that type of injury where you're losing him for the entire year. Yeah, I, I would He's agree. He's a veteran. Like, let him go in week one. He'll be able to handle himself if he is healthy at that point. Yeah. Yeah, but, I mean, do they maybe toss him into some practices to connect with their new receiver, Devin Funches? Or... Practices for sure. Like, run him in 11-on-11 11 11 if he's feeling up to it. No need to risk him in preseason right now, though. Okay, okay. All right, well, speaking of injuries, there was another one on the defensive side, though. This one happening to the uh, hometown for us as we're conducting this podcast in the Seattle Seahawks. The first round selection, LJ Collier, has suffered a high ankle sprain, and uh, both you and I have suffered these kinds of injuries. Neither one of us are professional football athletes, but the typical response to this is that four to even six week category injury. Um, what's what's the situation in Seattle here? Yeah, and so it's being described as a rare sprain where it was a almost freak coincidence that LJ Collier got this injury. Even thinking about a high ankle sprain right now, I can feel it on my body, uh, what that feels like and that the longness that it takes to recover from this type of injury. Longness. Longness. Sure. Yeah. It's a word, right? Oh, yeah. Okay. I did great on my SATs. I'm sure that must be a word. (laughs) But thinking about that defensive line as well this week, we had Ezekiel Ansa come back to practice. So I could also see that hesitancy to rush LJ Collier back. Well, yeah. You and I were discussing this before the show, and, uh, I was making it a point to discuss the fact that if a rookie is missing time in the preseason, that ruins your entire rookie season because the preseason and training camp, that's where you get those opportunities to sub out with those prominent starters and get those opportunities to run with the ones. Once the season starts, you are going to get zero opportunities to run with the first string starters. So LJ Collier is, unless there is a significant injury to somebody later in the season, I don't think you see him in anything except for sub packages, honestly. And remember, I believe the Seahawks brought back Cassius Marsh as well to play opposite Ezekiel uh, Ansa. That's true. Yes, he's kind of on that same scale with uh, Ezekiel Ansa. Both of them are really on one-year prove-it deals um, to see what they still got. Uh, Cassius Marsh, you know, really just didn't work out where he was. Um, uh, if I'm not mistaken, he was with Atlanta and Green Bay um, after he left Seattle. And uh, Ezekiel Ansah, since leaving Detroit, um, he's got a lot of injury concerns. The talent is there, no doubt, but it's a real question of whether he can stay on the field for a full 16-game season. Um, or at least be productive in the games that he's in. You know, I mean, you can't be productive if you're missing eight, nine games a season. So at least stay on the field for that 30, 40, 50% of the game and uh, be productive when you're there. And Ezekiel Ansah really just had one great year in Detroit. 
so speaking of one great year, Derrick Henry is also injured uh, right now where he is looking to miss a couple weeks. Should be a pretty small thing. Deion Lewis will take over while he is gone. The hope in Tennessee is that Derrick Henry will be back, that he will be dominant. I don't think he will be. I don't think so as well. Um, there was another piece brought out by ESPN that Derrick Henry is one of three candidates at the running back position that they are expecting takes a significant step backwards. And they even categorized him in the bust category for this year. Now, they were referencing fantasy football, but just read between the lines that if you're projected to be a bust in fantasy football, you're most likely going to be a bust in the NFL. Um, and, yeah, name one guy who's been a bust in fantasy, but not in the actual NFL. So well, you know, okay. <laughs> so um, basically, my 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 point there is that Derrick Henry does seem to be heading towards the potentiality of uh, joining a lot of other Alabama running backs that look good for a while, have a couple of good seasons, and then maybe take a step backwards. But. Uh, both of us are a little bit too negative on him, I will admit. Um, I try to be as positive as I can, but uh, I just don't see a lot of opportunity. I mean, this is a guy who just consistently could not beat out DeMarco Murray. Then he wins the starting job because DeMarco Murray retires. Yeah. And now he's starting the season injured, and that's just... You're you're starting off on the wrong foot here. And, uh, you know, anybody can turn it around. Um, hopefully he does for the sake of himself and for the Tennessee Titans. But as it stands right now, Deion Lewis, who has also had his own injury history, uh, he, he's going to be taking the starting job for now, and we'll see what happens going forward. There seems to be a lot of turmoil in Tennessee. I mean, whether it's Derrick Henry or Deion Lewis – whether it's going to be Marcus Mariota or Ryan Tannehill, who they gave up a fourth-round draft pick in a trade with Miami for. Um, this could very well be a team that starts off with um, several starters and then ends with a very different group, in my opinion. Yeah. All right, so talking about former Alabama running backs – Let's transition and talk about a former Texas running back. Ah, I see where you're going here. (laughs) Deontay Foreman has been placed on waivers by the Houston Texans. Now they are projecting that Lamar Miller will have a clear path to be their number one in that their backup spot will be up for grabs with potential of one of my fellow Eastern Washington University alumni, Taiwan Jones. But more importantly, Brad, you and I are in a dynasty fantasy football league. In this dynasty league for like the last three years, you have held on to Deontay Foreman thinking that he would take the job. This morning, I wake up to the news that Foreman is gone. And man, you were the first person I thought of in that moment. So, so talk to me about what you're going through. All right. So your words are hurtful. <laughs> All right. Uh, you clearly don't care about the feelings that I'm having right now. <laughs> uh, no, this is just, this is a situation where I wake up, I read the report, and I knew you were going to message me. I was waiting for it <laughs> all morning long, 
And sure enough, before even 10 o'clock comes around, uh, so how about Deontay Foreman, it reads. Yeah, this is a situation where um, Bill O'Brien is just another decision that I disagree with wholeheartedly. Why are you making this move? It it says in the release report that he's doing it because we don't agree with Deontay Foreman's work habits. That's almost a direct quote. Well, if you don't agree with his work habits, maybe you should have drafted somebody in the 2019 draft. Maybe you should have signed a veteran. Did you do either of those things? No. Did you re-sign Alfred Blue, who was the clear number two running back to Lamar Miller? No, you let him go to a division rival. So if you were going to cut Deontay Foreman, you probably should have done that before. And you should have found his backup before. But instead, you're going into this season with Lamar Miller, who has deteriorated year after year after year. In fact, he has not been the same player since his days in Miami okay that's how much he has gone downhill I'm not expecting some sort of resurgence for Lamar Miller maybe I'm going to be eating some crow but I would expect some sort of insurance policy by this guy what is he thinking like if you're going to cut a guy sure do it but you need to have a backup plan what is this guy thinking what is Bill O'Brien thinking Shem I wish that I knew. My first thought is Jay Ajayi. My second thought is maybe they're the destination for Melvin Gordon. Melvin Gordon? I I, I would even take Doug Martin at this point. Like, But Albert Morris just got sucked up by the Dallas Cowboys. You need to make a move soon because all it takes is one wrong move by a position player that is the most likely statistically to suffer an injury. The running back position is the most likely to suffer an injury. And you're going in there with Lamar Miller and a bunch of undrafted guys. And Lamar Miller has his own history of injuries in the NFL. Absolutely. And don't even toss in this possibility of Taiwan Jones, oh, your the Eastern boy, Washington Taiwan alum. Taiwan Jones, listen, this, you do not want to have Taiwan Jones as your number two guy. Taiwan Jones was effective. In Great special teamer. Let him do kickoff returns. Taiwan Jones. Yeah, he was effective as, as an FCS running back, never as an NFL running back. Taiwan Jones. Shut up. Man, we took physics class together. Okay. Yeah. All right. So that makes you some sort of... Uh, Expert on Taiwan Jones. Uh-huh. Basically, my point is, this is a very bad decision by Bill O'Brien. If you're going to try to send a message to a player, then do it. If you're going to cut a player, do it. But this seems like... I don't know. You You're just making your decisions as a coach by blindly sticking your hand in a cookie jar full of fortune cookie wisdom. Um, so whatever, do what you're going to do. But when Lamar Miller gets injured in the third preseason game or in week two, and you're stuck with running out Taiwan Jones, oh, Taiwan Jones, running back without Alfred blue, without Deontay Foreman, uh, have fun, have fun. Enjoy that lifestyle. All right, so 
Deontay Foreman, University of Texas, Texas Longhorn running back. You know what's the counter to Texas? Greatest football game I ever watched was between Texas and USC. So let's talk about a former USC player. See how I combine all that together? Yeah, well, we'll, we'll, we'll just accept that. Oh, that's pretty good. Ryan Khalil is back in the <laughs> NFL. Uh, good connection there. So okay. he plays for 12 seasons with the Carolina Panthers, retires. I know because I watched All or Nothing on Amazon, and Ryan Khalil very much retires, and then, like Brett Favre, has made his resurgency to the New York Jets. J-E-T-S, Jets, Jets, Jets. This was an excellent move for them. They tried to get Ryan Khalil a couple of weeks ago, and they really only got his wheels turning. But this week, um, they they finally gave him an offer that he couldn't refuse, offered him more money than he made in his last season in Carolina. Uh, but, hell, they got money to burn, so why not? And honestly, Ryan Khalil... His skills did not diminish. He left the NFL just on his own terms. He yeah. was still one of the best centers in the game last season. Uh, and and let's not kid ourselves. That offensive line last year for Carolina was very effective. Christian McCaffrey had a good year. Christian McCaffrey plays a very similar type of of game to Le'Veon Bell. So I think Ryan Khalil is a great leader to have in the locker room. He's an exceptional talent, and I think he's going to be opening a lot of holes for Le'Veon Bell this season. And one of the great centers to ever play football, who was also a New York Jet, immediately tweeted out, and that was Nick Mangold welcoming Ryan Khalil to New York. Yeah, and this they have not solve that position ever since Nick Mangold left. If I'm not mistaken, he retired in 2015 or 2016. So for the past couple of years, uh, it's just been a revolving door there. So bringing this guy in, it's not a permanent fix, but it's definitely a fix for this season. I would say that for sure. And Ryan Khalil, USC, uh, What's his name? Who's the quarterback? Sam Darnold is also USC connection there. So yeah, well, I mean they their terms were spread out over about you know a decade. So so then speaking of quarterbacks, it's important for the quarterbacks to throw to wide receivers, which brings me to Jordy Nelson. See connection, Jordy. Right? Yeah, uh, yeah. yeah, sure, sure, sure. Jordy yeah, Nelson. Yeah. So Jordy Nelson signed a one-day contract with the Green Bay Packers. It's what he should have done. It's what they should have done. Can we move beyond that? Very quickly, yes. Yep. Good He's... job, Jordy. Good job, Green Bay Packers. You did what you're supposed to do. Yeah. So this week, there was actual NFL football on TV. Oh, finally. Finally. Yes. It just took six months, Whew. and there was finally a game on TV and it was the Hall of Fame game. So the Hall of Fame game is the worst of all the preseason <laughs> games yes. to watch because it's the second teamers for about a quarter, and then it's the third and fourth teamers for the rest of the way. But And by the time you get to the fourth quarter, it's the fifth string guys. Yeah, let's be honest. It's that last like 80 to 90 guys trying to 
scratch and claw their way on the team. But this year was the Denver Broncos were in the game because uh, Champ Bailey, my favorite Denver Bronco, was a Hall of Fame enshrinee, as well as Pat Bolin. And then on the other side, the Atlanta Falcons were in the preseason game because Tony Gonzalez was a Hall of Fame inductee. And they weren't going to have the Broncos and the Chiefs play each other. Of so course not. Clearly, it was going to be the Broncos and the Falcons. And you're not going to have Ty Law honored or uh, Kevin Mawai honored in that way. It was clearly... They could have gone with Ed Reed and the Baltimore sure, Ravens. Sure, Ed Reed. But... but Baltimore had to play last year with Ray Lewis retiring. So, we have the Broncos and the Falcons preseason game. This is an important thing because I think that there are specific teams that are really, really, really good at finding those diamond in the roughs. And one of those teams is the Denver Broncos. And they're really good at finding undrafted guys, cultivating them, getting them to elite levels. Philip Lindsay last year had a great first two preseason games. We have undrafted guys like Rod Smith, like Shannon Sharp. Wasn't he an undrafted guy? Uh, Terrell Davis was a sixth round pick, had a huge first game in what Tokyo where he had his big tackle. But this game I have watched three times. I'm pretty sure that I've watched this game more than any other analyst out there right now. And so let's talk about it. And let's start with the quarterback position. So Kevin Hogan starts out the game as quarterback. Immediately goes three and out. Uh, Goes five and eight, uh, 37 yards, but doesn't really look all that good. No. And then Drew... Not in the first series. No, not even in the subsequent ones. But Drew Locke comes out. And I'll tell you guys. So, this is the first preseason game. He's a rookie. This is the Hall of Fame game. But I'm looking to see that spark. I'm looking to see something special that is ingrained in these young quarterbacks. And so Drew Locke goes out there, overthrows guys, underthrows guys, throws behind guys, runs backwards, gets sacked a couple of times. And all I'm thinking the entire time is, this is what Paxton Lynch looked like when I saw him as a rookie in his first preseason game. This is terrifying to me. So we were sitting in the same studio and I was the one trying to hype Drew Locke up. You were being a Debbie Downer. Uh, even my brother Dan was being a Debbie Downer about Drew Locke. And I was the one being an optimist. Now, I have watched the Hall of Fame game, and I am feeling like a real pessimist all of a sudden about Drew Locke. Tell me that I'm wrong. All right, so let's just switch positions here because yes i have been a debbie downer on drew lock my reasoning is in that previous uh negativity is because i have wanted for uh, over a year now for the denver broncos 
to stabilize the quarterback position, but plan for the future with a quarterback from Georgia named from, but that's not going to be the case because clearly they decided that Missouri was a better place for finding a quarterback. I disagree on a lot of different levels. A lot of good Broncos have come out of Georgia, you know, like no Sean Moreno, Champ Bailey, Demarius Thomas. And I wait. Are to... we counting No. Sean Moreno as a good Bronco? Hey, you know they 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 kept it together for a couple of seasons. Sure. Okay. But uh, let's just switch positions here because I saw that game in a different light. Mm. Um, you were very negative from that. You saw him, you know, being he didn't recognize the pressure. He was missing open receivers. However, I was seeing a guy with a cannon of an arm. So he is not going to be held back in any way by a physical liability. Okay. Now, uh, you and I are both big fans of uh, the West Wing. We're we're big Aaron Sorkin fans. Now, there's a line from that in which one of the characters says, two runners uh, run to first base. And one of them has perfect form. One of them has bad form, but both of them reach the base in the same exact time. Now, which runner do you pick? The one with bad form, because teach him how to run with good form, and he beats the guy with good form every single that time. That is my point. Drew Locke was suffering in the Hall of Fame game because of some accuracy issues, but he was not suffering in any way by some sort of physical liability that he couldn't make certain throws. And also, he did not have some sort of fear inside that he shouldn't make those throws. Like, he was putting some balls in some areas that were a little bit dangerous. Now, you could look in that as, like, you're making a bad decision, or you could look at it as, hey, you have the guts to make that throw. Um... I see this as a Denver Broncos team that is going to be effectively attacking down the field with Emmanuel Sanders, with Cortland Sutton, with Noah Fant, and you need a quarterback like Drew Locke who can make those deep throws. Now, the accuracy issues, I'm all on board with you about this. He needs to work on that, but you take the runner with the bad form because you can teach accuracy. You cannot teach a powerful arm. You have it or you don't. So that's my point with Drew Locke. The issues with not recognizing the pressure, you know what? You got to work on that. You cannot take sacks. You need to throw the ball away. You need to be smart. I don't want to see you running around like Ben Roethlisberger and taking sacks like Cam Newton. I want to see you throwing the ball away like Tom Brady. I want to see you throwing the ball away like Drew Brees, playing for the next down. Don't put your team in second and 18, third and 15 kind of scenarios. Be smart with the ball. But that power down the field is something I was very positive about. So there you go. And speaking of quarterbacks, so last year, I really liked Chad Kelly in the preseason, Jim Kelly's nephew, because he was a gunslinger. He was out there tossing balls, didn't really care about uh, coverage, protection, nothing. He was like Brett Favre out there. And so in this game, I really liked watching Brett Rippon, a BSU guy, Boise State University. He is the nephew of former NFL quarterback Mark Rippon. 
who, by the way, won two Super Bowls, including Super Bowl MVP. So it was fun to see Brett Rippon out there. My overall hope is that the Broncos start the season with Flacco, with Locke, and with Brett Rippon on the squad and release Kevin Hogan. My greater hope is that Locke develops into the guy who is the quarterback of the future and that uh, Brett Rippon is that backup, that Kubiak to him for a long time. Well, I think you're going to be a little bit disappointed because the way I see the depth chart panning out is obviously Flacco is number one. I suspect that they will keep Drew Locke at that number three position with Kevin Hogan as number two. And I think Brett Rippon is the kind of player that they can put on the practice squad and people will leave him alone. So I think Rippon stays on the practice squad for this first season. Uh, I mean, he was an undrafted guy for a reason. He's coming out of a smaller school. Uh, Boise State quarterbacks don't typically work out. Yeah. You know, that's unless just... you want to make them their offensive coordinator somewhere. Exactly. Then, yeah, like, yeah. you know, Kellen Moore is already a quarterback's coach in Dallas right now. So uh, I would hang on to Brett Rippon as a practice squad guy and slowly bring him into that backup role. But he I don't think he really warrants a third stringer right now. But granted, we've only seen one game of him. So sure. and he did lead them to that uh winning drive touchdown so i'll give him that though it was an ugly throw by him true but on the play right beforehand that had a penalty on it through a touchdown he did throw a touchdown on it so in in essence he he backed that first pass up with another pass even though you gotta admit that second one did look kind of bad yeah real bad so let's talk running back for a minute where I thought the MVP, at least on the offense for the Broncos, was Kalfani Muhammad, a guy who was on the practice squad last year for the Broncos, and this year has had a lot of hype around him in training camp. So the Broncos signed Theo Riddick this week, former Detroit Lion, a guy who's a really good pass catcher, but not really a guy who's really good at yards after carry once he makes those pass catches. And so the Broncos also have Devontae Booker, who was their third down guy last year. Is there an opportunity for Kalfani Muhammad to make this team as a third down running back or is there an opportunity for him to be the fourth string running back, but the special teams guy. I think the the latter is the answer here. I don't see him making the third string. Um, I think the third string is basically decided between Devontae Booker and Theo Riddick. I think it's going to be Theo Riddick. Um, I expect Devontae Booker to be cut um, before the fourth preseason game, in fact. Um I think Kalafani Muhammad, if he makes this team, he makes it as a four-string running back, and I would hope he provides some sort of assistance on the special teams, but not just as like you know a some sort of tackler on the punt return team. I want to see this guy as a returner yeah. because I am sick and tired of the revolving door guys 
as the punt returner and kick returner, if Califani Muhammad can provide some sort of stability at that spot, um, I mean, it's high time that Denver takes this position seriously. For sure. Brandon Langley was atrocious in the Hall of Fame game. And honestly, this guy just joins a long list of names from that 2014 draft that did not work out at all. Do you mind if I just read these off here? Do it. 2014 draft by the Denver Broncos. I'm going to go in order here. Sylvester Williams, Monte Ball, Kayvon Webster, Quantarius Smith, Tavares King, Vincent Painter, Zach Dessert. Mm. And now you toss in Brandon Langley with that 2014 class. That's O for everything. Yeah. Okay. Like, let's just cut away all of these pieces from that 2014 year and say, sorry, we just crap the bed, let them all go, say goodbye. Monte Ball isn't even in the league anymore. Neither is Sylvester Williams. Tavares King is barely on a depth chart in New York. Kayvon Webster, you know, has really bounced around. Quantarius Smith never played anywhere after Denver. Vincent Painter's gone. Zach, they're all gone, okay? Let's just let these guys go. We're keeping Brandon Langley. They even took away his number. He's number 12 now. They're trying to switch him from defense to offense as some sort of Jack Army Swiss knife with the return game and and, uh, wide receivers. He's not going to work out. Just let him go. Like, let's take this position seriously and actually get ourselves someone like Trendon Holiday. Mm. I hated the fact that the guy would fumble all the time, but he would also return yeah. touchdowns. All right. So, catching the ball, Kalfani Muhammad did great. Four receptions, 24 yards. But let's talk about the other pass catchers for a second. Oh, are you going towards Noah Fant here? Yeah, that's where I'm going to lead it uh, off with is at I the tight end position. So Noah Fant catches one ball for seven yards. He has a bad drop. He Two has a, bad drops. A couple bad drops. He has a terrible hold where the defensive guy is like running away from him and he's like holding on to his love handles a little bit. Well, and, and it negated uh, what, 22-yard run by huge Muhammad? Huge Kalfani Muhammad run. But Noah Fant did get open a couple of times, and the quarterbacks just threw him terrible balls. So you could see where that athleticism was really taking off in that he could create plays at a level where no one else on that second, third, fourth string field could do. Now, the tight end position is something of pride right now for the Broncos, where even outside of Hireman, even outside of Fant, they had Troy Fumagalli and Austin Fort, who has had a lot of love this uh, training camp season. But Fumagalli and Fort did not do particularly well, and Fant had some bad moments. So do you see this as a position of strength or something that has a lot of potential? I need to see strength before I believe this is a position of strength. Uh, So far, Jeff Hireman has proved to be a bust ever since coming out of Ohio State. 
Jake Butt has proven that he cannot stay on the field coming out of Michigan. Noah Fant, who is the highest guy on my list here, I think he's still going to be great. Um, I need to see greatness before I trust you. Troy Fumagalli and Austin Fort are not going to make the team. Uh, Fumagalli stayed on the team just because of injuries. Like They had to keep yeah. plugging and playing guys. Um, but I think this position group is deep enough that he may stay... He may stay if Jake Butt cannot come back fast enough, but that's really the only way he makes it. And Austin Fort, I mean, he's one of those guys that, you know, you read reports that, hey, he's doing really good, and then the next day he gets released. So uh, there's those kinds of stories are a dime a dozen in, in this time of the year. So, I like I said, I need to see greatness before I, I trust these players. Um, I'm, Noah Fant is all potential right now. Um, but he's he's got to show it on the field. And honestly, that hold, personally, I blame that entirely on Chris Collinsworth because it was one of those scenarios where um, <laughs> it's, it's one of those times when you see a player just get jinxed. As soon as an announcer starts talking about a specific portion of that player's game and rewatch that game for a fourth time, Chris Collinsworth <laughs> starts to talk about Noah Fanton, how good of a blocker he is, and that's exactly when the holding call happens, sure. and it negates a 22-yard run. So that was entirely Chris Collinsworth's fault. <laughs> I blame him 110%. I have no issue blaming Chris Collinsworth <laughs> for anything. So speaking of pass catchers, let's talk about Juwan Winfrey for a second. He's the guy who made the game-winning catch at the end, a tip up in the air, comes down with the ball, but he was a sixth-round pick this year out of Colorado, local guy, though he played his football in high school in New Jersey. But he is a guy who is being projected as that competing with Tim Patrick for the fourth wide receiver role. Uh, I personally really liked what Winfrey was able to do. I liked what he was able to perform out there. Uh, he did have a bad drop in the first quarter. Bad though. drop. And speaking of bad plays, I was also going to bring up Stephen Dunbar Jr. So he's a guy who was on the 49ers practice squad last year, which is where the Broncos' current OC is from. Uh, big guy, 6'3", 202. He had a bad fumble to end that first half. But... He yep. was targeted more than anyone else, not named Kalfani Muhammad, who they both tied in terms of targets. So in this game, in terms of wide receivers, Winfrey and Dunbar really stood out to me. Now, there is a positional battle right now between Langley and Kelvin McKnight for who will be the special teams guy. How did you see this whole wide receiver thing playing out from your perspective? Uh, Langley is gone. I don't see him surviving camp. Plain and simple. I didn't bring up also Nick Williams. Nick Williams made a couple of catches, and he became the punt returner for a while, where he's an undersized guy, 5'10". I think he used to play for Atlanta as well. Yeah, um... He's one of those guys I'm not 
suspecting that he can do something. I mean, he's he's going to have a lot to prove this training camp and preseason if he's going to keep his job. I mean, he could be one of those guys that drops down as a practice squad guy and slowly gets brought in, similar to Tim Patrick. Uh, nobody saw Tim Patrick coming until a couple of injuries happened, and he just kept outperforming in practice days. You know, when he was working with the twos and the threes and the fours, he just slowly worked his way up and ended up uh, outperforming a lot of guys. So could be one of those scenarios. I mean, the the Broncos wide receiving core is going to be in a little bit of a state of flux until Emmanuel Sanders comes back because right now it's Cortland Sutton and everybody else is a question mark, even Deshaun Hamilton. So it's going to be interesting to see where these guys pan out because I, I would not be surprised if starting week one it's Cortland Sutton and Tim Patrick. I wouldn't be surprised if it's Hamilton and Sutton. I, it, it could be a, a bevy of other guys. So it, it's really going to depend on how this preseason plays out. And who knows? Maybe Sanders is ready for week one. Uh, I'm not expecting that be considering how late his Achilles tear happened last year. But uh, we're going to have to see how it goes. I mean, even Winfrey, I'm, I'm pretty high on this guy. I think he has the potential. He was one of those guys that really fell down a lot of people's draft boards this this year. So, um, I mean, maybe he's one of those diamond in the roughs that we've been talking about that Denver does seem to find in that five to seven range of the draft. Uh, so hopefully he, he turns out that way. But Nick Williams, he's got a lot to prove, a lot to prove to stay on the field. Yeah, and so you brought up Brendan Langley. I think it's important to mention that he also had a pretty terrible fumble as a special teamer. Well, and not only that, but at no point as a returner did he stand out. Like, he didn't make any move to to get down the field as a punt returner. He didn't have any big kick returns. Uh, he just looked average, and then he has that fumble. So it's not like, you know, he had this fumble because he was fighting for extra yards. No, he just muffed a punt because he looks terrible. <laughs> yeah. All right, so let's talk defense for a little bit. I like where you're going here. Can I uh, start us off here? Sure. Kick All us right. Off. I am huge, huge on the guy that was filling in for Vaughn Miller because obviously he's not going to play in the Hall of Fame game. And I'm going with Malik Reed. Malik Reed. Number 59. This guy, I just, I got a good feeling here, Shem. And it's only been one game for the Hall of Fame game, all right? This is a nothing game. He's not going against the ones. He wasn't going against a legitimate left tackle. He wasn't going against a legitimate right tackle. But I saw this guy on multiple occasions come across the left side, come across the right side, and he was beating guys with power moves, swim moves, uh, just spin moves all over the place, making tackles for losses. He had a sack. He was beating his man and applying a lot of pressure on Matt Schaub and on uh, the, their third string guy. I, I forget his name, but number uh, Kurt Benkert. Yeah, Kurt Benkert. Uh, so Malik Reed, I think he looked incredible last week. Um, I'm I'm very high on this guy. He he looked almost identical to Shaq Barrett, and I'm hoping that he could be even more so than what Shaq Barrett brought to the table, but. 
this guy could be something that is uh, a very good substitute pass rusher in the event that you have to spell Bradley Chubb or Von Miller. And you just said Shaq Barrett, where I think of the last couple of years where the Broncos have had Shaq Barrett and Shane Ray. They don't have them anymore, so they need someone to step up and play that position. Come off the bench, let Chubb, let Miller have breath, and hey, if uh, Malik Reed is that guy, awesome. I love the sound of that. Well, it could very easily be one of those scenarios where you spell your best pass rusher, and as soon as a left tackler or right tackle sees that you've put that guy on the bench, he lets his guard down just a little bit, like, ooh, I'm finally getting a break. And then, bam, a fresh guy comes in like this and and just surprises you. So I see him being used in one of those very funky and very uh, uh, um, uh, unexpected blitz schemes that Vic Fangio is known for um, nobody's going to be looking for Malik Reed if if Miller and Chubb are on the field yeah and like you were saying having guy like that Shaq Barrett coming off the bench is great so I'm going to talk a little bit about defensive backs and okay. so that's something that uh, Vic Fangio and his whole defensive scheme have been really, really good at is great defensive backs and getting guys to overperform. And that was one of my big takeaways from at least the first half of the game and especially the second half of the game was how good these defensive backs looked where Isaac Yadam looked way better than even last year in a preseason game. Uh, let's 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 be a little bit careful there on Isaiah Yadam. I will agree with you that some of the defensive backs looked good last week. And so I'm also going to talk about DeMonte Thomas who led all players in tackles in that game. And he was a guy second year in the league who, hey, he played in 12 regular season games last year, or a bunch of regular season games. He had himself a sack, had himself a fumble recovery, but looked like a guy who could contribute as a backup safety going forward, which, I mean, listen, it's preseason uh, Hall of Fame game. We're talking about backup guys right now, but... True. He's a guy who stood out as well as Trey Johnson who had the big interception. Yep. And then I was also going to bring up Horace Richardson as well, a guy who also had a number of tackles, uh, put himself in a position to compete. Now, I'm going to agree and disagree that Thomas did look good um, for a considerable portion of the game. He did have some bad plays, though. There was twice where he got penalized, once for defensive pass interference and once on special teams for a block in the back. So you got to clear that up. Um, Last year, the Denver Broncos were second worst in uh, having penalties. So I don't want to see that this year. Vance Joseph was extremely frustrating as a coach because it never got better in the sense of penalties. I'm hoping that changes for Vic Fangio. 
Um, but I, I also got to disagree with you on Isaiah Yidem. If I'm going to give anybody a, a gold star on the defensive backs list, it's going to be Devontae Bowsby. That guy looked exceptional in press coverage yeah. in the Hall of Fame game. He was all over guys and wasn't afraid to get beat deep. It's almost like he knew he had speed to catch up, so he was just all over guys right at the line of scrimmage, whereas Yidem, I saw him on a third and 18 just completely leave a guy wide open for a first down. So he's just it's almost like Yidem is playing as a safety instead of a cornerback. Now, I will admit, there were other parts of the game where he did tighten up his game and he looked a lot better. But in those key moments, I want to see you play your best ball when it's third down. If you screw up on first down, second down, sure. But don't give up a third and 18. Give me a break, Yidem. And so you brought up Devontae Bowsby, who has also been killing it in camp. He's been one of the INT leaders during camp. Yep. Uh I will echo your sentiments that he looked good. Another defensive back that I thought looked better than last year was Sua Cravens. He had a big tackle oh, for loss. Yes, yes, absolutely. And I brought up Horace Richardson, the defensive back, and I forgot to give him credit for two tackles for losses as well, predicting uh, screen passes and going up and just taking out a guy. Yep. But yep. Sua Cravens... He's a guy who I would love to see do well this year. Sua Cravens, I think, is going to be the closest that Will Parks gets to competition for starting reps. Yeah. Um, I don't see that it actually happens. I think Will Parks can hang on to the job. But if anybody takes it from him, it's going to be Sua Cravens, in my opinion. Though it's looking like Kareem Jackson and Justin Simmons are going to be the starting safeties. And that could very well be. In that case, that would move Bryce Callahan most likely to the outside unless yeah. they truly feel that either Yadam or Bowsby can step up, which at this point, I got to be honest, Bowsby looks like the guy. I know we're very early in camp. There's only been one game played. But Bowsby is the guy that I would trust either on the outside or in the slot um, over Yidem right now. Yidem just smells like a bust to me from that Vance Joseph group mm. of guys that he's selected. Certainly could be. So one defensive position that I have given a lot of focus on has been middle linebacker. And your person who has said so, 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 so often on the show, the need for the Broncos to invest in inside linebacker, a big old son of a bitch to quote you, <laughs> run up on the middle and take someone out. And so I was watching that position quite intently. Uh, I saw Keyshawn Biera make a couple of plays. Um, I saw Joe Deneen, who I talk about on this show a little bit uh, make one really good tackle where running back looked like he was going to bust loose takes him out before he could do that but to me it seemed like the inside linebacker of note was Alexander Johnson where this is his second year uh, he was their starting guy in this particular game and he just looked like the better inside linebacker guy. So to me, he was the individual who had a chance to 
potentially earn that week one starting role should Todd Davis not be able to play. Yeah, um, so far I've seen nobody truly stand out to me. Um, What I'm looking for in an inside linebacker is you need to wow me, and nobody's come up with that so far. Um, But I will say uh, I think Alexander Johnson is that guy that has a very high floor but a low ceiling. Um, I don't expect him to make a lot of bonehead idiot plays, but I just I haven't seen that flash of greatness where you know he's making incredible moments on the field. So uh, I'm I'm still waiting to see who that guy's going to be. It, it you know it may be that the guy isn't on the team yet. Maybe it's just going to be Todd Davis when he comes back and Josie Jewell in the middle, and that's going to be that. Um, Maybe they're just going to be better at other positions, and that's how we have a good Denver Broncos defense. But uh, until somebody steps up, I I have to basically give a grade of incomplete at this point. Mm. Neither Deneen, Bieri, or or Johnson has shown me that this is what I can do on every play. So, Yeah, and... Moving down to the defensive line, we should give some love to Draymond Jones, who had a great fourth quarter in that Hall of Fame game. Not only that, but Adam Gotsis as well. He looked and that very was good the other in guy the first, I was going to bring up quarter. was Gotsis looked great in that first quarter. He looked like a guy who you could put across from Wolf every single play and feel really comfortable. Yep. I, I'm actually feeling pretty confident in the Broncos' defensive line. Um Wolf scares me just because he's had a lot of injury issues, but between Wolf and Gotsis, um, Demarcus Walker as a reserve, um, I'm still waiting for him to really step up and, and take the reins. But with Shelby Harris in the middle, he's on a one-year deal. Maybe it turns into something. But even if it doesn't, Draymond Jones is waiting in the ranks. I think this is most likely Harris's last year if Draymond Jones continues to perform. Because, But the thing is, Draymond Jones is one of those guys who's small enough, he could very easily move to the outside as an eventual supplant replacement to Wolf or Gotsis. I don't want to look that far in ahead, but I think this defensive line unit is very strong. I feel more confident about the defensive line than I actually do about the linebackers because there's such a question mark in the middle. Denver on the outside linebacker position is one of the best in the league, but the inside linebacker position scares me. So if I were to grade everything, I would I would probably give the highest grade to the defensive line. I would agree with that. Uh, so... Speaking of the defense in general, I thought that comparing watching the preseason of Vance Joseph to the preseason of Vic Fangio, even in the Hall of Fame game, was night and day in the ability of the defense, like an actual defensive mind running that defense uh, in Vic Fangio was far superior to what Vance Joseph was producing, but it did make me concerned about their offense. One group that we didn't talk about was offensive line in that 
Garrett Bowles played the first drive. You had Dalton Risner who played as well as Connor McGovern in that three and out. Um, yep. I felt like the offensive line through the entire game was giving up sacks, was giving up bad plays. It looked very reminiscent of the last couple of years, which is disappointing in that I think they have the best offensive line coach in football. Well, so let's give them a grade of incomplete right now for this reason. Juwan James did not play at right tackle, and Ronald Leary did not play at right guard for this game. Now, I have a quick take to jump in on right guard in a minute, but let me uh, explain just one thing in that for the first two drives, the starting offensive line was out there. You, you just said it. McGovern was out there at center. Risner was out at left guard and Garrett Bowles was out at left, left tackle. They, they didn't do well in the first drive. The second drive, they did put up a touchdown. Mm-hmm. Okay. What I didn't see is the most positive thing that I can say for him. There was not a single penalty on that offensive line. Sure. Garrett Bowles was the number one highest penalized offensive lineman last season. And you know what? Two series under his belt and not a single uh, offensive hold thus far. I'm expecting that to change, but you know, I, I want to see steps moving forward with Mike Munchak. Uh, in game two, they're going to have James out there. Most likely, most likely Ronald Leary. Uh, but let me discuss something really quickly here. Ron Leary, they got from the Dallas Cowboys. You know, he was somebody that was kind of overperforming. Uh, he looked really good in that Cowboys offensive line. So Denver decided to give him a couple year contract, paid him a bunch of money. He's been injured and inconsistent. However, the backup to Ronald Leary is someone who I'm a little high on this year. I think there's a little more competition that's getting notice in uh, Denver Broncos camp in Don Barclay, who they picked up from Green Bay. He's a veteran guy. I don't think he has the same kind of ceiling as Ronald Leary when he's playing his best, but Ronald Leary has not been playing his best lately. So... This could be a scenario where if Leary goes down with an injury, I think Barkley's the guy hands down at that guard position. So I'm feeling pretty confident about the offensive line from a depth perspective. I mean, remember last year we had Elijah Wilkinson jumping in at like the tackle spot and Manelik Watson jumping out there. And it just it, things did not look very good. Jared Valdir kept going down with injuries uh, I'm excited to see what Juwan James brings to the table. I think he's that kind of guy that can completely shut down one side of the field from pass rushing standpoint. And let's face it, this is a time in the NFL when a lot of teams have multiple pass rushers, like the Los Angeles Chargers with Melvin Ingram and Joey Bosa, like the Houston Texans with Jadavian Clowney and J.J. Watt. Well, maybe Jadavian Clowney. Maybe Jadavian Clowney. But a lot of teams are going for that two outside pass rusher type. Yeah. And I think Juwan James, though he plays right tackle, I think he's just going to shut that side down and 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 be a, a strong force. So I'm excited to see him out there under Mike Munchak. 
All right, so I think that puts a bow on it for this particular episode of Third and Manageable. I would agree. All right, so with that, I am still Shem Hanks. I am still Brad Roberts. And we'll be back at you next week, so see you then. All right, see you later. This has been a production of Values First. Uh, injuries continue to... Fucking... Why did I say, uh, why? <laughs> <laughs> Dumb! Dumb, I say!